Good morning. We're glad you're here this morning, and uh, today we're in part three of our God and Country series, and kind of the beginning of the series, we said this, that we're doing this series for a reason. It's not just to talk about uh, political issues, it's because we need to bring a biblical perspective to what we would say is nothing short of chaos in our country right now, amen? I mean, it's chaotic, and we need a biblical perspective. So today, we're going we're gonna to seek that. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29. If you don't know where that's at, just use your table of contents, because I need you to be there today, Jeremiah 29. Now, as we get ready to get into this, um, uh, the question I want to think about today, we've dealt with a lot of questions, but specifically the question today is this, is that in the middle of all this chaos and this mess, what is my biblical responsibility? What is my biblical responsibility in the middle of all this. Now, before we get to Jeremiah 29 and address that, I just want to say a couple things out of the gate. Before we can really embrace what we're going to talk about today and even next week, before we can embrace it, receive it, and actually make it a part of how we live our lives, there's a couple things I think, well, really one thing I think we need to talk about, and that's this. Where is the focus of your heart this morning? See, for many people with all the craziness that's going on, here's where the mo many people's hearts are focused. Politics, right? For many people, especially evangelicals, when it comes to the election, everybody's focused on the political side of things. So we're looking at parties, right? We're saying, okay, well, it's, it's the Democratic Party that will save our nation. No, 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 it's not the Democratic Party. It's the Republican Party that saves our nation. No, no, no. Then some people are like, no, we wish there was a third party because both of you stink. And so some people are focused on the party. Some people are focused on policy. I mean, if you watch any uh, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, all those things, which I watch way too much of, but when you watch those things, they're focused on policy, like Obamacare, affordable health care, which many of you, if you've been following the, uh, the news lately, will find out this, that Obamacare at its minimal is going to go up 25% this next year, which many of you would go, how is that affordable again, Right? And so the Affordable Health Care Act is really not that affordable, but we will talk about policies. Many people will talk about foreign policies. How is our country going to interact with other countries, and are we going to continue to allow them to have nuclear weapons? And so policy is a big deal. For some people in the room, the policy we will talk about is our Social Security, right? You know, as of right now, the trend they're going, and I know they say this about every five years, but the trend we're going right now that in 2025, there will be no more Social Security. So many of you that are like me, that are over 40, are going, well, wait a minute. We want that, right? We want to be able to retire. We want to be able to experience those things. So policy. And many are going, well, what about this minimum wage thing that seems to be coming up? And think about it. Isn't it sad in our country that you can work 40 hours a week and work your tail off, and at minimum wage, you're still not as good off as those who are working the system and are not even working during the week. Isn't this a shame? And so for many, that's it. Now, some of you, it's not about the policy or the party. It's about a politician. I mean, you are like, man, Hillary just hung the moon, or Donald Trump hung the moon, or there's a third party that had to have hung the moon. I mean, and so it's all about the politics. Many people, especially evangelicals, surrounding this election, it's about the politics. For many people, it's about this. It's about country. <laughs> especially if you talk to somebody over 65 years old. Because they'll say stuff like this. I remember when. Yep. Right? I remember when. I remember when our country had a moral compass. 
right? And you go on and on and on. So for some people, it's not about the politics because every, every politician, every party brings with it a different group of policies. So it's really not about the politics. For many of you, it's just about the country. But I want to submit a third thing to you, especially for those of you that are Christians in the room today. At what point do we make it about this? At what point do we make it about God? Right? Now, here's why I say that is because I watch a lot of news, and I listen to a lot of things, and I read a lot of Facebook. I don't post much. But one thing I know is this, that most Christians that I read are hung up on the first two, about the politics, the political side of things, and the country side of things. But I'm just telling you, as a Christian, we need to be hung up on the God side of things. That's why when we started this series, we started with a simple question, where do we find hope? Now, we know we can't find hope in the politics, Amen. If you're holding out for that one, you got a long way. And we can't find hope in the fact that our country, because we have on our currency, in God we, and in our Pledge of Allegiance, we're one nation under. And so we can't just say because somewhere in our, in our hierarchy we say God's name and invoke the name of God, that somehow everything is going to be okay. We said where we find hope is in God, Right? We said that we find hope because we serve a God who reigns and is in control, and we serve a God who rules, and we serve a God that saves. Because if you remember from week one, here's what I said. The problem with our country is not political, it is spiritual. And there's only one person that can fix that, and it's God. So where do we find hope? God. Where do we find our role as Christians in this mess? We talked about last week. Do we find it in politics? No. Do we find it in the fact that we're Americans? No. We find it in God when God says, if my people, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, called by my name, will humble themselves, seek my face, pray, and turn from their wicked ways, then I'm going to hear them, then I'm going to forgive them, then I'm going to heal their what? Land. We found out that our biblical role as a Christian is from God. It's to seek him, to humble ourselves, to pray, to turn from the sins that's in our lives. And then when we do that, God will begin to do something in healing in our country. And today the question is simple. What is our biblical responsibility as a Christian American? Well, where are we going to find it? Are we going to find it here? No. Are we going to find it here? No. Where do we find it? With God. Now here's why, here's why I'm kind of building this up. Because I'm afraid if we don't come back to the very basic truth that where we find hope, where we find our role, and where we find our responsibilities, that it comes from God, that somehow we're going to dismiss what I'm about to say today. Somehow we're going to dismiss the things that God's Word tells us today and next week. So I want us to just check our hearts this morning. What is the focus of our hearts? Is our focus here? Is our focus here? Or is our focus on what does God think? What is the heart of God? What does God desire for me? Where do I find hope? What is my role? And today, what? What is my responsibility as a Christian American? The answer is we find it with God. And so if we can't come to the table with that mindset today, chances are you're going to dismiss what I'm about to say. Chances are you're going to dismiss what we talk about today and next week that God's word has to say to us. So I'm just asking you, just would you check your heart? As we simply ask this question, what is our biblical responsibility as a Christian American. Jeremiah chapter 29. I want to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to find the answer. First of all, in Jeremiah 29, 1, Jeremiah, it kind of sets a stage for where we're going today. It says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem 
to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and to the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had taken in exile for, to Babylon. Now, real quickly, I want to give you just a little bit of history here because you're reading this going, okay, Jeremiah wrote a letter to people that are surviving in Babylon Okay, what's going on here? Okay, just a real quick history lesson. You don't have to have any biblical knowledge to understand what I'm about to say, all right? Way back last week, we talked about a guy named Solomon who got to build the temple. That was David's son, King David. Remember the one that killed Goliath? He was King David. He became this great king. His, he had a son named Solomon. And Solomon got to build the temple of God. Shortly after Solomon's time, they decide they didn't need just a king. In fact, they decide that we need to split this land known as the land of Canaan, the Palestine, Israel, the nation of Israel. We need to split because we just disagree on a lot of stuff. So the northern part of that land became the, known as the northern kingdom, and it was called Israel. And the southern part was known as Judah, and it had housed the capital or where they had the temple known as Jerusalem. So by the time Jeremiah writes... There had been two kingdoms, a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. Now, the northern kingdom decided at some point they were going to quit listening to God, and they weren't going to follow God, but instead they were going to go worship idols. And God says, I don't want that for you. I want you to live for me. And they said, no, thank you, God. And God said, fine, I'm going to let the Assyrians come in and destroy you, which is what happened. And then all of a sudden, they have this now one kingdom, the southern kingdom, Judah, which all the Israelites now lived in, and they would go worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah comes on the scene and says, hey, listen, I've got a message from God. And here's the message. Turn from your wicked ways or God is going to allow someone else to come in and take us out. Now, here's the interesting thing about Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached this message for over 20 years. Can you imagine that? Over 20 years, the same sermon every day at the temple. You're like, I'd quit going to that church, right? But every day. 20 years. Same, and there's got to be a point even for Jeremiah going, really God? Really? At what point is this going to happen? But for 20 years he preached the same message. You need to turn from your wicked way. Come back to God or God's going to bring destruction. Guess what happened? In 522 BC, God allowed the Babylonians, the foe from the north in the book of Jeremiah as it referred to, the Babylonians with King Nebuchadnezzar to come in and to ransack the southern kingdom of Judah and to destroy Judah and to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And then they took the elite of the elite, the people that were the who's who of Israel, the priests, the politicians, the doctors, the, the noblemen, all the people that were really intelligent. They would take them and they took them all the way to Babylon to make them captors and they slaughtered everybody else. And so Jeremiah is writing a letter to people who've survived the invasion of Jerusalem and Judah and have been taken to Babylon and now they're slaves and now they're captives and now they're in a foreign country and Jeremiah is writing them a letter. And by the time that Jeremiah is writing this letter, they, I mean, they are, they are totally overtaken by the evil Babylonians. There is no government to speak of. There is no military left and all the key leaders have been taken out of the country. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And Jeremiah writes this letter to the survivors. Now listen, the survivors are now that were in Jerusalem, are now in Babylon, and these survivors are disheartened and they're confused. And I'm just telling you, as I've been reading this passage like four weeks ago, I would say that's where I think I'm at. I'm disheartened with what I see, aren't you? 
And more importantly, I'm just confused. There's a, there's, and I don't, I don't wanna, I'm careful what I say because I don't wanna create doubt for any of you out there. But there's a part of me going, God, I don't get this. I know you reign, I know you rule, and I know you're in control. But really? I mean, this is a mess. And that's where God tends to remind me, hey, but my grace is sufficient for you. Just trust me, Doug, quit trying to figure it out because you're not that smart, right? And I'm not. So he writes these survivors. And let me tell you why he wrote the letter. Then we're going to get into the letter. He wrote this letter to these survivors for two reasons. One was to remind them of the responsibilities in a foreign country. And second of all, to remind them and to encourage them, don't throw the towel in. Don't give up. There is still hope. Don't give up. And so today, as we jump into Jeremiah 29, I want to say this to you. As we look at this passage, we're going to see two responsibilities for us as Christians in this nation of America that we should be fulfilling, but also I want you to be encouraged that there is still hope. Listen, I don't care what anybody says, we still live in the greatest nation on this earth. Amen? And I believe there's a God who can change the wickedness of the hearts of the men in this country if his people, who are called by his name, will humble themselves, seek his face, pray, and turn from our wicked ways, then God will do what God does best. Heal. So Jeremiah 29, here we go. He tells us in verse 4 and 5 and 6, or verse 4 and 5, he tells us the first responsibility that the Israelites should have while they're in Babylon. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the people whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Now, here's what, here's, what, here's what he's saying. Here's what Jeremiah's telling him. Here's your first responsibility. You ready? I want you to be in it, but don't be of it. Now, have you ever heard the expression that as believers were to be in the world, but not to be of the world? That's what Jeremiah's saying here. He's like, listen, listen, I want you to be in it because you're in Babylon. There's no doubting that. You've been taken captive. I want you to be in it, but I don't want you to be of it. Now, notice what he does here in verse four. Go back to verse four with me. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, to all that are in exile whom I have sent to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The first thing that Jeremiah says, listen, I, I, God is telling you not to be of it. And Jeremiah reminds him, this is not your home. Where is your home? It's Jerusalem. It's not Babylon. He's like, listen, don't miss this, Israel. Hey, I want you to be in it because you're in Babylon, but don't be of it. Don't be like the Babylonians. Don't take on their philosophies. Don't take on their lifestyles. Don't buy into their ideology of what life ought to look like. Don't buy into their gods. Do not, buy, do not be of it because this is not your home. This is not what God has in store for you ultimately. You're in it, but do not be of it. In fact, in verse 10, 11, if you'll skip down there, listen to what Jeremiah tells them. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for ba the Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and not for evil to give you a future and to give you a hope. Now think about that. God has told Israel, listen, I, I know you're in Babylon. I know. Now remember, why are they in Babylon? Because they disobeyed, right? And this is a beautiful picture for us that God disciplines his children not to pay them back, but to do what? 
bring them back. I'm telling you, a beautiful picture. Because God tells, tells them through Jeremiah, hey, listen, this isn't your home. I know the plans I have for you. I have plans to take you back. I have plans to give you a hope, a future. I have plans to prosper you. Listen, I know where you're at today, and the reason you're at where you're at is because you sinned against me. You rebelled against me. But don't forget, this is not your home. You don't belong in Babylon. Your time here will be temporary. So don't be of it. Don't be of it. And I thought, man, what a great truth for us today. If you're a Christian in the room today, listen to me. This world is not your home. It's not. You have a home. Listen, I have a room in the mansion of Jesus that's being prepared for me right now as we speak. I mean, now listen, you're talking years and years of preparation. I think my room is going to be pretty daggum awesome, right? Because you know what? My home is not here. Now, I have a home on 28 Tumbleweed Trail. That's my earthly home. But my home is not here. I don't reside here for all eternity. I have a home as a believer in heaven. So because of that, the words of Jesus and the words of God through Jeremiah should resonate with me. That I should not be of this world. I may be in it, but I shouldn't be of it. That's why the Apostle Paul said this, no longer conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, listen, I know you live in this world. But don't buy into their philosophies of how they live life. Don't buy into their ideologies. Don't buy into the world's politics. Listen, buy into what God says. Buy into what God thinks. Buy into what God desires. And he tells them out of the gate here, I don't want you to be of it. Then look with me in verse 5 and 6. He says, but build homes and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their fruit. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and multiply there and do not decrease. He says, listen, I don't want you to be of it. I want you to be in it though. Now, how many of you know people that their philosophy of life is just to endure it? How many of you know people like that? I mean, they live every day. Just, I gotta make it through today, right? If I can just make it to bedtime, it'll be over with, Right? Their philosophy is, I just have to survive. Now, I want you to notice something here. Listen, God is telling Israel, you're in Babylon because you sin. But listen, this isn't your home. This is not what I have planned for you. I've got plans for you. And you don't know what they are, but I do. I love Jeremiah 29, 11. He says, I know the plans. You don't know my plans, but I know my plans. And my plans have nothing but prosperity and wealth and future and hope in store for you. But I don't want you to be of it. But listen to me, I want you to be in it. In other words, I don't want you to be in Babylon and hope to survive it. I want you to thrive in Babylon. I want you to thrive where I've planted you. So you know, guess what he says? I want you to build homes. I want you to take wives. I want you to have babies. I want your babies to have babies. I want you not to decrease, but I want you where you find yourself right now for whatever reason, I want you to thrive. I want you to bloom where I have planted you. And I'm just telling you, listen, this is profound truth for us because it is real easy to look at the political system with which is over us today and the election that happens just 10 days away and to look at it and be so disheartened that we're ready to throw the towel in and go, God, I just got to, I can't wait for November the 9th and for this to be over. And I would say if that's your heart, shame on you because that's not what God desires for you. God says, I know what's going on in America. 
I know that both people running for president are screwed up. I know that. I've allowed that to happen. But believers, here's your responsibility. Be in it. Thrive. Bloom where I've planted you. But don't be of it. Because this isn't your home. See, we are in this to be liked. But we're not to be of it because this earth and this world and this country is not our eternal home. So the first responsibility Jeremiah gives him is to be in it, but not to be of it. And then he goes to the second one. Look with me in verse 7. He says this, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its welfare will be fine your welfare. Now he tells them two things. Here's what you need to do. I want you to be in it, not of it. And the second responsibility is this. I want you to be for it, not against it. One of the things that probably irritates me more than anything is when you read or you listen to the reports and the news lately, doesn't it seem like everybody's complaining about something all the time? I mean, we don't hear the positive spin to anything. It's always the negative spin of everybody and everything and every policy. Can you agree with that? It's, it's we're all against it, right? We're all against it. We're not for it, we're against it. And what God tells Israel is, hey, look, I know you're in a foreign country, a country, by the way, that you're there because you sinned against me. But don't be against it. I want you to be for it. And he tells us two ways to be for it. First of all, he says, seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of that country. And second of all, pray. Haven't you noticed in the last three weeks, prayer has been kind of that thing we keep coming back to, right? Seek their welfare and pray. Now, I want to camp ground for a minute on the first one. He says, seek the welfare of that city and for us it would be this country. Now, the word seek we talked about last week means to chase after or to pursue. And the word welfare in the Hebrew literally means a desire for wholeness and healthiness. That's what welfare means. It does not mean what we think when we think of welfare system. It, what it means is, in the Hebrew, a desire, for me to desire a wholeness and a healthiness to the land with which I live in. And so here's what God tell, or, t- tells Israel through Jeremiah. Here's what I want you, here's your second responsibility. I want you to be for it. I want you to chase after. I want you to pursue the healthiness and the wholeness of the land that you live in. I want you to pursue it. I want you to go after it. And here's how Israel was to do it. They were to do it, first of all, by being, interjecting godliness into a godless society. Now, I don't have near enough time to talk about Babylon, but here's what I will say. Babylon was maybe one of the most wicked cities that we will ever read about in the Bible. I mean, only one that could compare would be Nineveh, which we know very little about Nineveh. Babylon was a wicked city. And one of the ways that God, uh, God tells them, Jeremiah tells them, I want you to desire the spiritual, social, and economical healthiness of the land that you live in, of the country that you live in. And I want you to do it by interjecting godliness into godlessness. And another way I want you to do it, we find out as we read the whole Old Testament, is by being a voice of godly principles. Now I want you to think about that with me for just a minute interjecting godliness into godlessness. Probably the best example I could think of with that is, the, is Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was a person that lived in Jerusalem that was kidnapped from the Babylonians and he was taken to Babylon 
And because of, if you read anything about Daniel in the book of Daniel, what you find is this guy just lived for God. He was put into a godless situation and time after time after time, Daniel continued to be a godly man in the midst of godlessness. And the way that Daniel sought the welfare of the land of Babylon that he lived in, the way he sought the spiritual, economical, and social healthiness of Babylon was just being a godly man into godless world. And another thing that you see is, is the way they were to do it was by being a voice of godly principles. Probably the best example I'll give you is in the book of Daniel. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three guys that love God, serve God. And all of a sudden, the king said, hey, look, if you don't bow down to me, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar said that. And these three guys, we know the story, didn't bow down. And so Nebuchadnezzar burned with anger and brought the men to him. And once again, because he liked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, gave him another opportunity. He said, look, guys, listen, just, just, just bow down. And we'll be okay with this. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego planted a godly principle that was amazing. He, they said this, O king, you may throw us into that fiery furnace, but we won't bow down. Because our God is able. Our God gives us hope when it seems hopeless. And so king, you can do with us whatever you want to do, but we're not bowing down. And you know the rest of the story, right? Three were thrown in there, four were seen in the fire, they come out, the ropes are unsinged, and all of a sudden because of those guys interjecting godliness into godlessness, those guys being a voice of godly principles, now a king's heart changes in the book of Daniel, and all of a sudden Nebuchadnezzar goes, wait a minute, quit worshiping me, let's worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because these guys are living for what they believe in. Now listen to me, that's what God intended for Israel when he said, I want you to seek the welfare of the place you live. I want you to desire social, economical, and spiritual healthiness, but here's how I want it to happen. I want it to happen by you being godly in a godless world. I want it to happen by you being a voice of godly principles so people will see their hope. And listen to me, this is true for us too. Now this is where I don't want you to part company with me. I want you to hear me out. We need to be people who seek the welfare of the country that we live in. We need to seek economical, spiritual, and social healthiness. How do we do it? Just like Israel did it. By being salt and light. By being salt and light. By people, when they see us, see us reflect Jesus and living for Christ and reflect the hope that we find in God alone. One way that we can make a difference in our country and really seek the welfare and pursue the welfare and the goodness and the healthiness of our country is by being salt and light. Another way that we can do that, like Israel, is by using our voice for godliness. Now listen to me. One way we can do it is by being salt and light. Another way is by using our voice for godliness, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now let me just say something to you. One of the voices that we have as Americans, one of the voices that we can use to actually express what we view as godly opinions and godly positions, one of the voices we have is our voice to vote. Now you need to know this. It's our voice to vote. In fact, I would believe that I believe this, that voting is our voice and our way to be for it, not against it. 
Our voting is our way to be, it's, it is our voice and our way to be for it. Now, I, I, what I want you to do today, as I want you to think about, it, is I want you, before you leave here, to make commitment, hey, I'm going to vote. My voice matters. Listen, some of you go, well, what's one vote matter? You know what? It's your voice. Because when you're in your family and you're getting into a fight, I guarantee you want your voice heard then because you're going to raise it above everybody else, right? Your voice matters. You have a voice. You have a voice to say, I believe this is what I think is godly and right, and I'm going to express my voice through my voting. Now, some of you in the room today go, okay, Doug, you say I have a right to vote. I also have a right not to vote. Right? A lot of rights there, correct? Let me just say this to you, and this is a broad stroke, and we'll come back to it maybe one day later. This is true across every boundary there is. Anytime we elevate our rights over our responsibilities, that's sin. Did you hear me? Anytime we elevate our right over our God-given responsibility, that's sin. For example, I have a right to say to Brett whatever I want to say to Brett. But I have a God-given responsibility to love my neighbor as myself. And when I take my right and I elevate it over my responsibility, the Bible calls that sin. And the same thing's true, I believe, in this. You have a voice to vote. So vote. Now, I know what question I've been asked way too many times. So who should I vote for? Well, let me just tell you this. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. That's not my job, not my position. I'll be overstepping every grounds there is if I told you. Because both candidates, that we know both candidates for the most part, are flawed people and they both need the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Just, just like we do. Amen? Amen? But I do want to tell you this. There are a couple of issues that are biblical issues that need to shape how and who you vote for. And I'm not advocating a candidate. I would never do that. And I'm asking you to do something I've never asked you before. I'm asking you to do your homework. I'm, and listen, the best way to do your homework is Google, right? Google some stuff. Find some stuff. Read some stuff. There are two biblical issues. There's a lot. But there are two biblical issues that I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, and not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, that should shape our vote. Number one, life should shape our vote. When does life begin? Through natural death. That should shape our vote. What about life? When does life begin? When does life end? Let me put it real simple. When is a baby a baby? Well, I'm just going to tell you this. This is, just, this is not Doug's opinion. This is the Bible. It's conception. Psalms 139 says this. For I formed you together in your mother's womb. I fearfully and wonderfully made you. I knit you together. That at conception, a baby is a baby. In fact, I was reading this, and this, was, this blew my mind. I, it's probably too big for me to think about. Some of you will get it before I will. But some said, no, it's not, when, it's not a conception. It's before conception. I'm like, what? Well, that makes no sense. And it was based on Jeremiah 1 when God says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. <laughs> what? You mean life begins before conception? Yes. Exactly. And is there ever a point life is no longer valuable and should be taken? See, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, here's what I find out. God is the giver and the taker of life. It's him. Now, I don't want to offend anybody, but if this offends you, we just need to have a biblical conversation because I love you. I really do. And I know politics can divide families and homes and churches. That's why I'm not talking about this, but we're going to talk a lot about this. 
Okay? My Bible's pro-life. And not just life on earth, but eternal life. And I'm just telling you, one of the things that should shape how we vote, whomever you vote for, is what is their position on life. The second position is this, marriage. Marriage, a legal commitment between two people for life. Is that okay for anyone who loves each other? Or is that between, <laughs> you're like, I'm going to answer that question. Okay. Or, or, or is it between one man and one woman for life? Once again, once again, not Doug's opinion, this is the Bible. Genesis 2.24 says this. For a man will leave his father and his mother and go unite with his wo- no, wife, not woman. <laughs> not woman, it's wife. Wife. And the two shall become one, right? Now, I'm just, I'm just, I, listen, listen, I'm not, I'm, I'm, this is not my, what well, is my opinion because it's the God's opinion, but this, I'm not trying to, I'm just saying these are two issues that are huge. And I said, it's not just this election. It's been every election in the last 20 years, 30 years. And I'm just telling you, as a believer, we must vote for the person that we believe most aligns us with God and what God thinks and what God feels and what God wants. Can we disagree with that? I don't care who it is. Do your homework. But the one that most aligns us right here. Now, let me tell you why this is so crucial. I was reading an article about three weeks ago, and it was written by um, a guy that when he speaks, everybody probably listens. His name is Billy Graham, if you've not heard of him. He's the evangelist of the, the 20th and 21st century that, that has seen thousands of people come to Christ, done many, many crusades. Millions of people's lives are changed. Here's what he said. He said, that the most important issues of this election are not comments made 11 years ago. is not 33,000 missing emails. The importance of this election is that the next president of these United States will get to elect more Supreme Court justices than any president ever has. And those Supreme Court justices will shape the morality of our country for the next three decades. So, we better go with him, hadn't we? If you're really concerned with our country and you're really concerned with what, where we're headed, we need to make sure that our vote, whoever that person is, aligns itself with the person we feel like most lines up with Biblical truths. And I know there's that, there's that person out there going, yeah, but Doug, they're all going to flip-flop. I know. Didn't I just tick you off too? I know they do. But you've got to start somewhere, don't you? And I'm just telling you, the two issues for me that always matter to me the most is life and marriage. And the next president gets elect Supreme Court justices, which gets to affect the morality on those two issues for not just the next eight years, not the next four years, but quite possibly the next two to three decades when most of us are dead and gone and our kids are our age. How do you want their culture to look like? What morality do you want their culture to be facing? So I'm just telling you, you're like, that was a long point. I'm just telling you, we need to seek the welfare of our nation by being salt and light, but by using our voice to vote and vote for the individual we believe that will most align us with the truths of God's word. And remember, they too are sinful, flawed individuals that need the grace of God like us. Okay? Second thing, he says this, I want you to seek, but also I want you to pray 
for the welfare of the city. Now, prayer just means this. He says, I want you to cry out on the behalf of your country. I want you to cry. I want you to cry out that God would make us healthy. Look what he says in verse 7, the very end of it. And then we're going to wrap this up. He says this. He says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, the thing about this, if God heals our country, will we reap the benefits of that? Not a trick question. Will we reap the benefits of that? Yes. yes. If our country goes down the path that continues to go down and our morality continues to go where we no longer have a moral compass, will we reap the effects of that? Yes. Well, you're not convinced? Yes is the answer. It will. So he says, listen, not only do I want you to seek the welfare, I want you to pray because it affects you too. And I don't want you just to pray some shallow kind of words. I want you to cry out to God and cry out and say, God, I want you to do something radical in my nation, radical in our country, radical in my heart. Pray. So we have two responsibilities today. Be in it. Thrive. Bloom where we're planted, not of it, because this is not our home. And before it, don't be against it. Seek the welfare of our country. Seek it out. Pursue it. Pursue the, that we would be a healthy country. Be salt and light. Use our voice to vote. To hopefully vote for the person we feel like will most get us back closer to the principles we find in Scripture. And then pray. We can be for it by praying. So here's my prayer for us today. As believers, those of you that are followers of Jesus Christ, that here's my prayer for you, that in 10 days, the decision you're going to make, and we're going to talk next week, so we're not done with the series. We've got one more week. But for those of you that are followers of Christ, that you would make a decision based on biblical truth, not personal opinion. And I'm talking about your opinion. Okay? Biblical truth. And then there's some of you in the room today going, I don't know why I came today. Because what I needed was not a sermon on this, because I feel like I'm far from God. I feel like my life is messed up. I feel like I've got chaos at every turn that I make. Well, here's good news for you. You just described the country that we live in. And we find hope in God, don't we? He is our hope, because he reigns and he rules. And I would say this to you, he, can, he reigns and rules over you as well. It doesn't matter what mess you find yourself in or how bad your life is or how awry things have gone or how jacked up you feel this morning. The good news is this, just like our country has hope in God, you have hope. But all you have to do is surrender your life to Christ. The one who loved you enough to die for you on a cross. So that's why you came today. It's because like our country, you seek hope. And hope is that word and that thing you can find only in the person of Christ. So if you don't know Jesus today, listen to me. I don't care how messed up you are. You don't need to clean your life up. You just need to surrender your life to Jesus. And then your hope will be that there's a place in heaven that awaits you. So will you give your life to Christ? I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Everybody just stand up. Everybody stand up. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Just every head bowed and every eye closed. And I'm just going to pray for us today. And before I pray, I just want to say this, that if you're a follower of Jesus in the room today, I want you to take seriously what we talked about. 
I want you to go back to Jeremiah 29, verse four through seven, and I want you to read it, and I want you to pray, and I want you to take seriously that we have a biblical responsibility as Christian Americans. And will we take serious that responsibility? Will we choose to be in it and not of it? And will we choose to be for it, not against it? And then I pray for those of you in the room today who say, I don't know Christ. I feel like I'm far from God. You have hope today. I mean, don't miss that. Our hope is not found in an earthly person. Our hope is not found in an institution. Our hope is found in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who died for you and three days later rose from the grave. He is your hope. And no matter how messed up you are, he's always willing and ready to accept you and receive you. This is what we're going to do today. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask our small group leaders and our elders and wives, if you would just kind of find an empty space in the room. And maybe today you just need prayer. You just need someone to pray because life has hit you hard and things are not going well. And you just need somebody just to pray on your behalf. To cry out to God on your behalf. I ask you to to make your way forward as we sing. Maybe you're here today and say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, and today I want to surrender my life. Would you make your way forward and let them tell you what it means to know Christ? And if you're a believer in the room today, would you make a commitment to take serious your responsibility as a follower of Christ who lives in these great United States of America? God, we ask you to be with us. I know there's so many opinions so much tension in this room. But God, I pray that for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that we can come to the table and go, God, we're just going to go with what you say. We're just going to go with your biblical truths and your biblical principles because God, when we look at the people that stand as a possible president, we have lying, we have cheating, we have offensiveness there. And God, it disgusts us. But what doesn't disgust us is your principles. Your principles on life. Your principles on marriage. Your principles on how orphans and the poor and the widows are to be treated. And so God, while I may be disgusted by a candidate, I'm not disgusted by your precepts. And this election on November the 8th, I choose to vote in a way for the person that most aligns with your word and your way. As believers, God, give us that resolve today. And for those who don't know you, may they realize there's only one place that their hope can be met, and it's in Jesus. So God, just be with us today. Speak to our hearts. Touch us in a way that only you can. And for those that need prayer, Lord, and for those that need Christ, may they have the courage to step out and to come let somebody know. For it's in your glorious and your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship together. In the quiet, in the still.